0: Hi, everyone. I'm Sheikh, and welcome back to the Humans of AI, where we meet all the wonderful people building the magic that's changing our world. Today, we're meeting a very special guest. We're going to talk all about the implications of ethics and responsible AI development. Ravid, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. Ravid, the very first question, how would you describe what you do to a five-year-old?
1: Yes, I would say I'm trying to make computers do better things for us.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually have a four-year-old niece. So I should try it in a hurry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. You've had such an interesting career starting in software and product management there. Could you tell us what your career story is and what were some of the inflection points along the way that led to your current focus?
1: Yeah, Okay, I'm going to start chronologically. Yeah. My very first job actually was in tech. That's how I started my career, but I wasn't thinking about it seriously because my goal was to be a scientist. And I thought, how, how will I make the most money in the shortest yeah. amount of time? I could be a waitress, but no, I will work in tech because that's going to make me more money. <laughs> so I found myself working in tech, but more like a side hustle. That was Actually, my introduction into the tech industry. And one of the first companies I worked in was an AI company. I didn't think about it much at the time. It was more than a decade ago. Yeah, but that's how I got started. And then I did my undergrad in physics and chemistry because I wanted to be a scientist. But no. as I was doing that, I realized that the questions I'm asking are not actually physics questions, they're actually philosophy questions. Hmm. I switched to philosophy. In philosophy, what I was very interested in is reasoning, especially reasoning in science, because science is stereotyped to be the best kind of reasoning, right? When we mm-hmm. reason well, that's what we do science or that's a stereotype. I, towards the end of my undergrad, was actually questioning that, mm-hmm. right? What is so good about the scientific reasoning that we do? What is supposed to distinguish it from other things? This is not a science question. This is a philosophy question. It was one of the reasons that I switched to philosophy. Interesting. Yeah. And I was especially interested in values. What is the role of values in this scientific reasoning? It's supposed to be objective or something, but what does that mean? And so at the beginning of the 20th century, people—I know it sounds like a tangent, but you will see how it's related to AI. <laughs> in this, no is, minute. Oh,
0: this is a great tangent, at <laughs> <in> least.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so at the beginning of the 20th century, in the discipline of philosophy of science, people thought that when science is at its best, what they call line-free, right? Mm-hmm. So leave your values at the door— Leave your values to the politician. As a scientist, you're supposed to create something objective that later people could use for political purposes, but not in science. Leave it at the door. So this was the beginning of the 20th century. With time, people realized that this view of science, or for me, it's not about science Mm -hmm. per se. It's more about reasoning. But they realized that, no, it's not really a view that makes a lot of sense to us. And as the 20th century evolved, People realize, no oh, no, values are actually an inherent part of science. We can't pull them out. Yeah. Um yes. and as time progressed, they embraced the role of values. More and I came into the scene in, in the 21st century. At that point in the systemic philosophy of science, people were no longer asking as much whether Values are part of science, but rather, given that they are part of science, how do we manage them? So it's not about shooing them out. It's about identifying them and utilizing them, right? So there's a great analogy that values in science are like knives in the kitchen. Yes, if you use it irresponsibly, it's going to be dangerous. But if you're not going to use it, you're just not going to make a lot of progress. I was engrossed in this whole debate, which focuses mostly on natural sciences like physics and social sciences like anthropology, sociology, and thought, This is great. However, what was the snow discipline? There's no kid in town. Machine learning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: no we've been hopping on physics for ages, but this new no discipline—it's a combination, I yeah. think, of science and engineering. And I'm hearing a lot of the similar voices. It's not free. Subjective. It's just math. I'm an engineer. Leave me alone. Go on to the exercise if you want to throw in values. And I think, wait a minute though. This sounds awful here. And actually, many of the lessons that we've learned in philosophy of science, I think, apply to machine learning too. It's not actually value-free. It's a misconception. And it's a harmful misconception because when people don't realize how social and political values integrate in their work, that's when the irresponsibility is gonna happen, right? Because they're not gonna notice. You're just not gonna notice. So I did the into system chemistry. Then I switched to philosophy because I realized the questions are actually philosophy. And then I realized that I really care about what's going on in this discipline of AI this machine learning and no. the things that we were talking about actually apply. So this was during my PhD, get a PhD in philosophy in Berkeley. So my first task was I want to show that the discipline is not value free. I want to show how political and social values are actually deeply degraded into what's happening in a discipline. With time, I just let the shift happen in philosophy of science, I too realized it's not about showing that the values are there. It is about managing them. That became increasingly more important to me. I didn't want to just show it in a paper. I didn't want to write academic papers arguing for what people could theoretically do. No, I wanted to shift the industry in a different direction. I wanted to shift how the development and use of AI is happening so that it would first of all recognize the political and social aspects and then also act to make it better. And so I find myself here today.
0: Seems the summary of your career is to question everything and get to the roots of what the values are.
1: (laughs) It's funny you should say it that way. In a way, yes. The first thing I learned to question is people who say they question everything. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Nice. That's awesome. On top of your current consulting work and academic research, I saw that your work with Bria, where you're working as being the responsible AI leader there. Could you share any examples of processes or ideas that you introduced that helped shape the product development processes?
1: Yeah, okay. So I'm going to answer this question in a more broad way. but also, maybe I should have mentioned more about what I actually do right now. So what I do right now is a mix. In the field of responsible AI, there is a lot of unknown when it comes to what companies should actually be doing. Yeah. So there are two ways that I'm forging this. First, working with companies hands-on. Bria, as you mentioned, is one of those companies that I work with. And then also doing research and specifically academic research to figure out what to do. What we have right now in the space is a lot of documents from various companies, consulting firms. Unfortunately, many of those companies are not as useful. Sometimes they're more like marketing documents, right? Because those organizations, they want clientele. And academia is not producing as much of this as we might want. So there's a research gap that is happening. So that's what I'm doing. I'm doing a hybrid of research and working with organizations. And also I should say there are two angles to this question. One is what should companies be doing? How do they become responsible? The other end of the spectrum, though, is what is gonna be the motivation? Mm-hmm. Regulation yes. is great. However, it's not the only thing. I'm focusing on following the money. So all of those actors that spend the money into the AI ecosystem, such as investors, especially VCs, procurement, especially procurement in public administration, they also should be a part of the responsible AI game. And also they are often motivated, but just like the tech companies, they don't know what to do because there isn't enough for them. So mm-hmm. it's the same with that I do. It's research, right? To figure out conceptually what should they be doing. And then also working hands-on with organizations. So that's where my answer is going to be coming from and why I'm going to give you a more general answer. I think a really common mistake that companies make is they start with, oh, let's put up some kind of a document. Let's write our principles. The problem is that we don't have any indication that implementation follows from those activities. I just finished a research study just on this, so I got some data, actually, Mm -hmm. about what companies are doing. And we just haven't seen any evidence of this correlation that companies can start with writing those broad commitments, documents, whatever, and move on to implementing. It just doesn't really seem to happen in practice as much. There could be many reasons for that. That's, I think, one battle there. This approach just hasn't really proved itself. And I think an alternative approach is to do a bottoms-up kind of effort. So it could start with a team or a product or a feature, right? And try to build up. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it that I think is equally as important, often analytics is people perceive it as some kind of like a side project. nice to have. There are two aspects I want to highlight here. One is it's a nice-to-have. So anytime something urgent is going to come up and something urgent is going to come up always, it's just going to be pushed aside. The nice to have aspect. And then the side project aspect is that it's not integrated in other things that the company is doing. It's not integrated in the business model. It's not integrated in the revenue streams, which is why it's really difficult to get Mm -hmm. Uh, buy-in. Buy-in from senior management and also buy-in from the actual employees that are supposed to be doing the work. It's so I think with the first point that I mean, why aren't the AIX documents succeeding? I'm hearing again and again from people. We worked with document, that we're trying to get buy-in from management and it's difficult and just struggling to get resources. Why? I think it's because of those two reasons. It's considered a nice to have. People don't see the connection to revenue. And it's a side project. Maybe they think about it as something that the engineering team is supposed to do, but it's not related to marketing or sales. These are the things that are getting in the way, I think. So my opinion is that if you seriously want to do AI things, first of all, understand how it impacts your business model. Put it as a part of your business plan. Understand how it impacts all teams because otherwise it's just not going to happen. Also, I seriously believe that it does help with profitability, even though it's not maybe the main reason to do it, but it does. So if you're not seeing how, you should look into that. I would say first, Figure out how it fits in your business model. It's just not going to happen otherwise. That's my
0: broad advice. You mentioned that based on those public disclosures, there's no evidence for many companies of things actually leading to implementation. But along that spectrum, are there any companies or organizations you discovered that are making quite meaningful changes based on that? Any ideas as to what's different about those companies and the cultures there that's made that possible?
1: Probably best to not name names. (laughs) Yeah, but here's a good rule of thumb: When I'm looking at a company and I want to know when they're doing well or not, the first question I'm asking: What are they measuring? Mm-hmm. It's great if they on a document, you know, which they say we believe in fairness and anti-bias. We totally want our system to be non-biased. Great. What kind of bias? Are-
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> what kind of bias are you measuring? How are you measuring it? These are the first two questions to ask. Unfortunately, I'm not, given the maturity of the market right now, I'm not even asking, what are you doing to mitigate? What are you measuring? When you say Bayer, what do you mean? And so some companies in your public documents do actually talk about that. For example, Duolingo. I live in Pittsburgh, so go Pittsburgh. <laughs> so Pittsburgh is the headquarters of Duolingo. So yeah. that's fine. <laughs> but for one of their products, they have a really detailed... Yeah, thanks, document. And they do talk in more detail than many companies that I've seen about what they measure. And then what do they do with those measurements? I can't speak to what they're doing internally. But from the document, at least that document gives us some kind of indication to what they do. And there's a question of culture which you've raised, which I think is key. What is it that makes culture support responsible activity versus not? To me, that's an empirical question. It's actually one of the projects that I have on the stove right now because there's a theory in the field of organizational psychology. The theory is called organizational climate theory. It says something that is super commonsensical. When the employees at a company perceive that some kind of facet is important, like privacy, for example, so when the employees perceive that privacy is important, that's when the company is going to do better at that thing. So if the employees perceive that genuinely the company values privacy, they're actually going to work on it. And then the company is going to improve. So this is a theory, a climate theory. And one of my projects that is ongoing and I don't have conclusions yet is, in the case of AI, what are those things that are going to make the employees perceive that the topic is genuinely important to the company? What I can say based on my work so far is what is not doing that job? The principal documents, I don't think they're doing that job. We're not seeing that. Moreover, as a part of this project, I did start already. some interviews with practitioners, yeah. I ask yeah. them, do you think AI ethics is important to your company? And they'll say always, yes, of course, so important. And I'll say, great. What makes you think that it's so important? What are those indicators? And Austin will hear, yes, we have a team that thinks about that. We have a document about that thing. And I'll say, great. Does it impact your work and all? day-to-day work. And they'll say, no, Like it's not my job. It's someone else's job. So you see this gap. What are those factors that are going to push culture in a different way? I have some guesses myself, but the reality is, I do think this is something we should look into empirically in a rigorous way. So that's what I Okay, maybe this is unsatisfying a bit. So I'll say what I think, it goes back to the measurements. Yeah. What does the company actually measure? And what are the implications of those measurements? I think I would start with that.
0: Good. Okay. Huh. Then outside of those public disclosures, when you're doing research or advising a company, as you try to help them figure out what to measure, what are the things that you look at internally? Is it product roadmap documents and engineering things? Who are you talking to to get a holistic understanding of what these responsible frameworks should be?
1: Yeah, okay. It's really going to depend on the company and especially on the size of the company. If it's a startup up to, say, 50 people, it has to be the CEO who's going to push it forward. The CEO has to be committed. If it's larger, then it really depends. It could be the engineering team. If there's an AI ethics team, it could be them. It could be the privacy team. I actually think it could be also marketing, sales, those kind of teams, because I don't think it's bad. It's good to make it a part of the business case. Sometimes those external facing teams, customer success, marketing, sales. They're the engineers of the company. So they understand if they can identify that the customer is concerned about something, they're the ones who are going to bring those priorities into the company. And then I think the effort must involve people from all of those teams that I've mentioned, right? It's got to be the engineering some kind of external facing team, if there's some kind of privacy, compliance, cybersecurity, whatever it is that they have. It needs to be a collaboration between all of those parties. And I think that the first step would be identify, think seriously, what are some of the risks that are relevant to you or your customers? Ask your customers, ask your investors, you can do a survey or just have a conversation with them. Identify those things that you genuinely think are important for your company values or your revenue identify three, say privacy, fairness, and transparency. Now you've chosen them, ask yeah, okay. all the difficult questions. What will you actually measure? Do not put it all on the engineering team because it's actually not their skill set, which is why they push back, right? Yeah. What they often need, they'll say, give us some metric. Give us something to optimize that, we'll do that. But give them something to optimize that. Mm-hmm. So make those difficult choices. When you say fairness, what does that mean? For example, which groups are included? Is it gender? Is it race? Which genders? Which races? You have to answer those questions, and you have to know numerically what does that even mean. There are no obviously rather and wrong choices. There are some wrong choices. It's just value decisions that must yeah. be
0: made. Interesting. I know that a lot of your research also focuses on just the role of power dynamics in the interpretation and development of ML and how political the process can get as you bring your own biases and viewpoints there. Within that context, what are your views on the recent AI executive or order from last week? Are there any aspects of it that you think uh, carry a certain level of bias?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. That executive order is very high level, so it focuses most on what federal offices should be doing. Yeah. However, something that comes up frequently in the AI space is focusing on large corporations most and on smaller businesses less. That is a very important part of the dynamic. Often it's the big corporations who have a seat at the table. Sometimes they're being accused of pushing for regulation to suppress competition. And when I see some of the regulation that comes out, for example, the executive order recommends the NIST AI RMF, the Response framework, which is, I think, the leading document on AI governance. However, when you read that document, I think it has more of an emphasis on those large corporations. It can have an unintended consequence of, on those smaller companies. It's not an unavoidable result. I'm actually working on a maturity model based on this that's going to be more friendly to a wider uh, range of, of companies. Yeah.
0: Yeah, That'll be great to see. Cool. (laughs) Shifting gears a bit. So there's obviously an explosion in AI tools and services and companies, and many people who are on the buying side are getting inundated with requests for all of these AI tools. As a buyer of technology at, say, any tech company, what are some of the questions I should be asking these AI vendors selling their tech in order for me to identify potential ethical risks?
1: Exactly. Yeah, love this question because I also have a product of this. Yes. Ask them what they measure. Ask them what they measure. Do not settle for whether they have uh, these principles. Do not settle for whether you see leadership. Definitely do not settle for whether they have personnel. Sometimes they'll push back and say, yeah, we haven't put all these people. Great. But what do they do? Do they just send blog posts or is there more? The best thing to start with, make sure the tool is even accurate. Do not assume the tool is even accurate. And if it's accurate, do not assume it's accurate for your target population because of those biases. Hmm.
0: What would be an example of a good metric to measure? And is there any sense of acceptable benchmarks out there?
1: Yeah, no benchmarks, unfortunately. This question is difficult inherently. I can't really give you a clear-cut answer, but I'll give you an analogy. Think of DEI. In the DEI world, we want companies to be diverse, but when does that mean? Does that mean employing women? How many? Senior management? Everyone? Okay, do we want also racial diversity? Oh, we want also sexual orientation, right? What does it mean? What do we need to measure exactly? I can't tell you because these are deeply political questions. But I can tell you that it makes a difference when the company decides to measure something. When it decides to measure something, I think it really increases the likelihood that it will make progress. Also, when you see what it measures, then you, from the outside, can think about how that drives with your own values. Oh, you only measure how many women they have and not with senior management. That's not actually good enough for me. You can say that, right? Only mm-hmm. once something is measured. But it's not because you're going to have any benchmarks or strict knowledge about what's the right thing to measure, what is the right number.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. That's a good segue to my next and last question for you, Ravit. which is, let's say I'm a product manager at a tech company working on a AI product. I'm really interested on ethics and responsibility. There's no company-wide practice quite yet. But on the individual level, where can I go and what resources would you recommend for me to learn more about this world and how I can apply it to my day-to-day?
1: Okay, I would say follow the nose. There are many online courses and stuff like that. And people might be interested in more like an abstract ethics view. As I said, my PhD is philosophy. So I encounter people like, oh, why do we apply consequentialism? I don't think that's the right way to go. It's a skill. You need to practice the skill. And the skill is, think of an AI system. Identify the impacts that this AI system has on the world and how it can be harmful or helpful. If you are an engineer, think about what is it that you can do? People tend to blame data sets. Yes, data sets are a big part of the issue, but it's not the only thing. Changing the data set that you train on is not the only thing you can do. So I would say the first step, think about case studies, but real case studies. So look at the news, you know? Yep. Just today, I read, you know, in June, there was a chatbot that a mental health organization built and let's say it's way by the wayside. You can read about something that, and go through this process yourself. What happened? We're like, what could happen? What could
0: I do to fix it? Awesome, that's great practical advice. That's all I have for now. Ravid, thank you so much for the wonderful and thoughtful chat. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talented management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero.